But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 8 of the REACH podcast. Today's a really special episode because I just got back from ACSM, the American College of Sports Medicine Conference in Denver. Every time I go out to that conference, I come back energized from seeing old friends and, and what they're getting up to in the area of cancer research, meeting new people from all over the country and all over the world who are all coming together to try and you know present research, connect with each other and really accelerate our growth towards establishing exercise oncology as a standard of care. I met some incredible people who are doing work in different areas that I'm unfamiliar with, that I learned a lot about, and that I hope to get on this show and, and talk about their research. Things like struggles that people with head and neck cancer have in terms of eating and how they go about exercise because it can take them so long to eat that they may have difficulty exercising. Other people working on colorectal cancer and, and some of the issues that are, are surrounding their, their surgery and post-treatment options in terms of exercise there as well and then you've got people on the other end of the spectrum who are just working on getting people moving and what can we do to reduce sedentary behavior so it was really just an incredible conference a great week to to be there and a really exciting one for us in the area of exercise oncology and that dr katie schmitz who has been leading our field for years was announced as president-elect of the organization itself. So this is a sign of the growth that we've made as a field as a whole and, and really is so inspiring to see someone within our field be at the forefront of, of the organization. So, so as I said, I always come back energized and just feeding off everyone's energy and their passion for this field has just kind of inspired me to, to keep going and, and keep doing whatever I can to progress the field forward. So be on the lookout for a lot of those episodes coming up soon, hopefully late summer, early fall. Uh, but again, I can't thank everyone enough for this week. It was incredible to connect with all friends and meet new people and just hear the great work that everyone's got going on. And one of those people was Titch Mizima, who I've come to become good friends with. Titch did his dissertation work at Florida State University, where he looked at protein supplementation in breast cancer survivors. A really important study for the fact that protein supplementation, or any sort of supplementation, is fairly understudied in this population. So the fact that he's actually given these people protein supplement is, again, a sign of the progress our field has made. Our talk is also really important because... If you look at the abstract of his study, uh, you may kind of come to the conclusion that protein supplementation isn't effective. But there are a lot of intricacies to the study and nuances to it that if you're not familiar with research and, and are unfamiliar with interpreting research and the methods of these studies, you may come away with some different conclusions. So this is Titch's opportunity to elaborate on his study, to go into greater detail into what they did, and just get the information out there and again, bring exposure to our field in terms of weight training and breast cancer survivors and the utility of protein supplementation in this population. 
so we'll jump right into it. Be on the lookout for some really great informa- information on uh, modifying exercise around lymphedema. Discussion around a woman who's 74 years old who's still weight training. And then kind of some practical take-home points for both survivors and professionals in the area who are interested in starting an exercise program. So here's the episode and I hope you enjoy it. All right, so um, basically the title of the study was um, the effects of resistance training and protein supplementation um, in breast cancer survivors. And um, our main outcome measures was body composition, mostly, um, and, you know, muscular strength and physical function as well. The rationale for um, using a protein supplement is um, earlier on, we had done a study where we just, you know, looked at dietary intake and breast cancer survivors um, and the relationship with dietary intake and body composition. And what we found was that um, women, the breast cancer survivors who consumed um, more than 20% um, of protein in their diet um, had significantly greater bone density at several um, skeletal sites. One of my fellow uh, um, colleagues in graduate school, she uh, she had done a um, six-month intervention using strength training um, and uh, prunes or dried plums, you know, to help uh, increase um, bone mineral density and you know improve body composition so increase lean mass and decrease fat mass so that study um, you know looked at um, strength training resistance training twice a week um, and they did two sets you know full body exercises and the intensity for that study really only ever really got up to about 60 60 65 67% you know over the 6 month period so so I'll just I'll, I'll pause you there so when we're talking about 67% um that's going to be a, a percentage of 1RM right yeah yeah so sorry, for for those of you who are who are listening um one one repetition max is lit- is essentially how much weight you can lift for one repetition so if you squat at I'd say 200 pounds, 60% of that, or 67%, you're going to be looking at about 110, 115. So that's how those percentages work there. Go ahead, Titch. No, awesome. Yeah, thanks for thanks for clarifying that. Um, so they, yeah, that study only really ever got up to about 67% um, of the one repetition maximum. So um, it was very moderate and understandably because of the concerns, you know. So, um, so with our follow-up study, um, we did a couple of things differently. So it was... The time was shorter, so it was only three months. Um, but we decided to try to be a little more um, aggressive with that exercise prescription. And so we were trying to go for a target percentage of one rep max to begin from 65% to about 85%. So it was more, um, it was slightly more vigorous. Um, and then we also decided to try and include a daily protein supplement. So what we had is we had two groups, one group performing resistance training alone and another group participating in resistance training and also consuming a 40 gram daily uh, whey and casein protein supplement. Both groups are um, performing resistance training uh, two days a week. And what we did with the exercise prescription is that they did a um, total body workout. Um, so all their major muscle groups, 10 exercises. Um, they performed two sets of 10 reps on each exercise. And then they did a third set to failure. So just reps to failure. Sorry, when, when, so when they were doing the reps to failure, 
what was it was it usually you're looking at 12 reps or were they going to 15 how what did that reps to failure look like okay so yeah that's a good question so it was just as many as they could do at that weight um so they began at you know 65 percent of their one rep max which was basically roughly what we're trying to go for a, a 10 to 12 rep range for for all their sets so theoretically for their third set if the the load was intense enough that they should struggle to get to 10 reps for, for their failure set. And that was very useful for our progression um, because um, they were doing this the, the training two days a week. So on their last uh, session each week, um, we looked at their burnout set, their basically their third set to failure. And um, if they were able for every two reps, um, they were able to complete past 10 on their, that that set to failure. Um, the next week, we um, increased the weight by about five pounds. I'm sure you have the same thing. One of the most often asked questions of us is, um, how do we progress this this exercise? When we give our talks to to the community or to professionals, and they're saying, well, how do we how do we you know progress our exercise week to week? And I think um, that's almost that two for two rule. I think just to kind of reiterate what Titch said, if you're doing three sets two times a week and, and a set is a set of repetitions so you're doing 10 repetitions at 100 pounds and you do your two sets at 100 pounds and you're feeling good and that third set you're kind of seeing well you know I'm having a good day I'm feeling good can I get an extra few reps and on that third set if you feel really good and you're getting two or three extra reps it's probably a good indication that hey you're starting to get a little bit stronger um, it might be uh, time to kind of move up and wait and those smaller increments of about five pounds seem to be uh, the most beneficial for just kind of marginally improving your week to week in terms of progression. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's, you know, it was very individual. You know, some of the survivors on the third set were, you know, were getting up to 18, 20 reps. So the next set, I mean, we the next week we definitely increased it more aggressively. Whereas you know, some survivors were weren't. So, um, but regardless. On that third set, if they were able to get to 10 reps, we did still increase the weight the next week. To our listeners, by survivors, we're talking that all of these participants, there was about 30 of them, right, Hitch 33, they had all completed treatment. Yep, all completed, uh, all primary treatment, so chemotherapy, radiation. The only thing is we, we still accepted women who were still on hormone therapy. And so um, looking at the average time post-treatment, about 70 months, which what's that, three-ish, three, four years. Um, so those survivors would look a lot different than someone who is actively undergoing chemo. And so maybe our progression might look a little bit different from someone who, uh, you know, a survivor who's three or four years out from treatment may not have the same day-to-day fluctuations in energy as someone who's going through active chemotherapy where you know they have their infusion on a monday and they're feeling wrecked on a tuesday wednesday and maybe starting to get back to normal by the thursday and so and when we're talking about this progression this would be more related to those who are who are further out from treatment than kind of a lot of the initial really high intensity kind of uh, fatigue and nausea and all that type of stuff have dissipated to where they're kind of you know back in that regain a normal function type of phase would that be right Titch? absolutely absolutely and thanks for clarifying that because i think that's important to 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 point out and that's true because 
you know, some of our survivors were recent survivors in the study, you know, so maybe, you know, three, four months out from treatment. So um, just thinking back at it, um, their progression looked slightly different, um, you know, because the energy levels were, weren't as high. Um, so, you know, they typically would have progressed slowly. But we were still able to keep that same intensity with them as well. But uh, progression looked a little different. That intensity was really great. And I think you point, made a good point about um, how do we communicate how patients or, or survivors and clients should progress. And I think obviously progression is is, is vital um, and obviously, you know, individual progression. But I think there is um, definitely a need for all of us who do this work to kind of come up with a standardized system of how we're going to progress. Um, ACSM is our national governing body or one of them and they, they have a, a pretty big interest in in exercise oncology and and the field of cancer itself and so much so that we actually have a special interest group which has been phenomenal for for me to to meet you know people like titch and, and others in the community that are doing this similar type of research um but if you look at our field it's probably only about 40-ish years old and resistance training even is is much more recent i'd say 20 25 years and so a lot of the earlier research looking at resistance training was just looking at safety and feasibility and and can we do this in in this population particularly breast cancer survivors where there's a lot of fears of of exacerbation of lymphedema and so a lot of the foundational work that came before this was was merely just looking at can we actually do this and uh, Titch hit a good point where we're now at the point where we have the ability to to step back from the field and look at it and say this is what's been done up until now and to to improve the field moving forward we do have to kind of come together as a whole and look to develop these more specific guidelines on prescription of exercise on the dose response of exercise and, and particularly on the progression of exercise so you're not getting five or six different studies that di- have different modes of progression, and we're starting to really focus on on really teasing out the the, the nuances of, of that in this population. Absolutely, and um, you know your recent review paper kind of outlined that really well, um, and um, it was a really good read. And um, I think that I think that's the direction we need to to move forward. Yeah, and and I have to I have to hold my hand up and and uh, give a lot of props to Dr. Kristen Campbell and, and her group because they herself and Carrie Winterstone did two prior reviews um, in in both. So my my review paper was specifically in resistance training, but I I got the idea from reading uh, the, her two papers. I think they were in eleven and twelve respectively, looking at um, both aerobic and resistance training across the field. And so there were some really, really strongly designed reviews and, and uh, really gave me the, the idea to, to kind of dig a little deeper into resistance training. So um, I have to I have to just throw that out there and, um, you know, give give credit where credit's due. No, absolutely. 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 I agree. I agree. So, you know, just kind of going back to something you mentioned, too, about, you know, the fear of exacerbating lymphedema, um, you know, with our with our study, um, we did measure, you know, arm circumferences throughout the study to see if our um, intervention was um, in any way going to exacerbate lymphedema. Um, and actually, it, it didn't. You know, there weren't any incidences um, of it getting worse. 
And then some of the women that actually um, had history of lymphedema, um, there was some improvements um, from the exercise. So um, let's let's backtrack there. Can you can you explain a little bit what lymphedema is, um, some of the symptoms, and and how you measured it, and so on, and and just to give people a clearer picture of what what we're talking about. Very often um, during diagnosis, if the um, cancer may have spread towards some of the lymph nodes, um, some of them do get removed. So what that does is it it basically limits the the drainage of the lymphatic system um very often it it's it's it may occur on just one side the side that had lymph nodes removed but some of the symptoms of that include arm swelling discoloration and and pain in that arm or in that extremity that had the lymph nodes removed typical clinical practice you know historically has always told women um who have had lymph, lymph nodes removed to um limit um, lifting heavy objects, no more than 15 pounds in that arm or that extremity that's been affected uh, with lymphedema or that's had lymph nodes removed. You know, but ironically, giving that advice, I think, you know, you're predisposing that, that woman or that survivor to deconditioning of that arm. So in some ways, could make it worse in the sense that when you are um, in a situation when you do have to lift something heavy, then it's, it's, that much harder it's, it's such a it's such a good point that that i want to focus on that because i mean you had survivors who are three or four years post-treatment and some of my research we had five or six years post-treatment and they come to you and say well six years ago my oncologist told me that i shouldn't lift a gallon of milk over my head ever again and as you said it it it's not just for the duration of treatment you're looking at these these folks who haven't done any sort of exercise with that arm for five six years because that's that's the the idea that stuck with them that if they do they're really going to exacerbate this this condition and it's just not the case and i think we're the more studies like like the one you have and and others in the field that the more we can we can bring these out and kind of tease out the idea that hey exercise can actually at minimum doesn't doesn't exacerbate it but can actually benefit uh, these symptoms of lymphedema, I think, will start to change that kind of uh, dogma around this idea of limiting. Uh, I, I mean, a gallon of milk is is you hear that and you kind of cringe that people have not been exercising for six, seven years because of that, you know, simple piece of advice. No, absolutely, I I agree. And so so naturally, a lot of our survivors were cautious about that, you know, at the beginning of the study, and um, and were were weaker and. Um, you know, in the upper in the upper body. So um, that was, you know, something that a barrier that we had to during the intervention to kind of overcome um, through conversations as well. But um, we were measuring it. Um, so what we did is um, throughout the study, at the beginning of each week, we would we would measure arm circumferences um, on you know the arm that had lymph nodes removed, um, and we compared it to the arm that didn't have lymph nodes removed, so the unaffected arm. So we used that to track to see whether there were any, uh, if the swelling or the arm volume in the affected limb was increasing throughout the study, i.e. we're making, potentially making lymphedema uh, worse um, or exacerbating it. Um, and then obviously self-report as well. Um, so we would ask the women how they're feeling, etc. 
um, any women that had compression sleeves um, at the beginning of the study, you know, we encourage them to to continue to wear them. Um, and actually, a lot of them kind of stopped, you know, throughout the study. Um, so there weren't really any any issues with lymphedema in the study. One of when I was kind of reading over the study, you had uh, one participant who had some difficulty doing some of the lower body exercises due to peripheral neuropathy. Can you touch a little bit on that and then maybe talk about some of the ways you worked around that? Because I think it's a it's a pretty common side effect of, of some of our more common cancer treatments and a lot of people do experience some degree of peripheral neuropathy. So I think it'd be great to give give folks a little insight onto uh, what that is and, and how you worked around that um, with the exercise program. Yeah, it's one of the side effects of, of, of chemotherapy that um, does affect you know, a decent, decent amount of survivors and, and patients. And, um, you know, so it's pain in the extremities. Um, so oh, that one participant that was experiencing it, uh, would typically was struggling to do, um, exercises like the, the leg press. So what we had to do was, um, very often we would, we would, instead of doing three sets like normal on the leg extension, um, uh, would work, and do an extra three sets on that leg extension to kind of compensate um, for the leg press. Um, you know, she often would say that during the exercise and doing it actually kind of helped relieve some of the pain, that nerve pain. So, you know, but then it would it would come back um, a few times. So I think, I think that's just an example of a, a typical situation in which if you are working with a, a a recent survivor or a patient, um, I think just being able to make adjustments. So another adjustment we made was um, she was having trouble with the leg curl on the machine. So um, we made an adjustment by having her doing um, leg curls on a stability ball. So if you you know if you lay on your back and you you put your feet um, on the ball and you raise your hips and then you roll the ball in to work your hamstrings. So making little adjustments like that. Um, have you? worked with any um any patients or survivors in a similar situation yeah i've had a, i've had a couple who've experienced a degree of of neuropathy in their hands and and um have had difficulty gripping free weights so like that uh we've kind of just moved more to machine-based weights in that um this kind of along with pain folks can experience a, a certain degree of numbness and and tingling in their hands and and uh when we are doing certain things like arm curls or uh, overhead shoulder press, um, they didn't feel overly comfortable having using their grip to, to, to carry free weights. And so we just moved to machines. And again, kind of as you said, Titch, it's, it's just being able to make those little adjustments on the fly and, and having, having that background knowledge of, of what peripheral neuropathy is, um, that it, it's a common side effect, but it's not something that's, so debilitating that would uh, prohibit safe exercise and it's it's something that can be worked around so for professionals in the field working with survivors I think it's really important to to understand the nuances of, of the treatment and a lot of the common side effects so you, you have that ability to work around them and then for survivors there will be more barriers to 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 exercise than than you know your kind of general population and those who haven't gone through treatment but they're not they're not barriers that can't be overcome either. And again, by by you know us talking about this and us getting the awareness out there, I think it will give people the the ability to 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 foster those ideas and be able to to work around them. 
Um, and it's something I'm really passionate about because I think we only have, when we publish our journals, we only have a certain amount of space to talk about our exercise program. And we don't have the ability to elaborate on these nuances. And this is the stuff that, that comes up and that stuff like this podcast, we can elaborate a little bit more on how we work around things. And then we present at scientific conferences and I'm standing up there talking to uh, Titch and other scientific researchers in my area and saying, exercise is good. And they're going, well, yeah, we know that. So I think uh, if, we, if we can find a way to bridge that gap and, and you know, have these type of conversations and, and get the, the, the word out to professional survivors that these are the types of things we experience, these are how we work around them, I think it, it can really help you know, drive the field on together as a whole. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, the upside is, is just so beneficial um, for a lot of the survivors. You know, the women got really strong after the study um, during it. You know, an example would be, um, I'm not sure, you know, the 45 degree back extension um, machine. So, you know, at the beginning of the study, a lot of survivors would be doing that, you know, with body weights and um, so we had some little dumbbells in there that we were continuing to add as, as weight and progression. And eventually, um, the weight wasn't heavy enough. So I had to run over to one of our other labs, which we, we call the, um, the muscle lab, um, <laughs> at doctor's orders, actually Dr. Mike's orders had put together and, um, got some 45 pound weight plates. And, you know, a lot of our survivors, um, even one that was, you know, 72 was using that 45 pound weight plate as actual extra weight for that back extension. So, so that was really cool to see. You, uh, you essentially progressed on week to week from about 65% of their one repetition max all the way up to close to 80, 85%. Um, so yeah, let's get back to that and kind of talk about what you saw and what you found. Sure. Um, so one of the main questions was, was a protein supplement actually going to be more beneficial than just the resistance training alone? Um, so the women in the um, protein group were given a ready-to-drink protein supplement. Um, so it was a daily 40-gram um, dose um, that we split into two 20-gram doses. So they consumed that 40 grams separately. So um, on the days they were training, they had that that 20 gram dose, um, right after their training session. So we just had it there for them, um, ready to drink. And then their second dose, we had them consume it, um, 30 minutes before going to bed to kind of help them, you know, give them protein, um, as they're going to sleep to help recovery, um, et cetera. So was the, uh, was the, the post workout supplement that was way and then the nighttime was casein or was it a mixed between both? It was mixed, so so both both doses was a a, a uh, blend. Um, so twenty grams, uh, about one hundred and fifty calories. So what we thought was the consuming the protein would be more beneficial for changes in muscular strength, increases in lean mass, um, decreases in fat mass um, over the twelve weeks. Um, but what we did ask is we asked the ladies to um, in both groups to maintain their normal. Uh, dietary habits. Unfortunately, what happened was, um, you know, the women in the the um, protein group actually made probably because they were consuming that extra protein supplement, um, cut back on their dietary protein. So instead of actually um, supplementing the protein, 
um, we ended up repra- replacing their dietary protein. Yeah, so you were looking to give them an extra 40 grams a day and it only ended up being an extra 17-ish grams a day because it, it looks like they cut, as you said, cut about 20 grams out to, to account for that extra uh, protein. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we didn't detect any um, differences in the groups, um, but largely because of that. And then, and we, we assessed this by doing getting um, three-day food logs at three different time points in the study and baseline um, halfway through and at the end of the study. So we saw some changes in, in diet. Um, now, that could be because they were ta- because we were collecting food logs, um, changes on those days were made. Um, you know, there are some limitations with, you know, self-reported um, dietary logs for sure. Um, but, um, you know, it, it also could be because, you know, protein is fairly satiating. So, you know, increases satiety. And, and so it's possible that, you know, because they were consuming this protein supplement, they were just feeling fuller um, and didn't consume as much. Which could have some implications for anyone trying to lose, no, no the survivors trying to lose weight um, over a longer period of time, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it would be interesting, particularly to look at the uh, the the morning protein on on the days they weren't working out, um, if their breakfast changed at all, because on on the mornings they weren't training, they were having about thirty minutes before breakfast. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see if that, as you said, kind of buffered. Um, their their hunger levels and maybe they had a, a, a smaller amount of breakfast a couple of really important points on that and you kind of alluded to to some of them if you're a professional in this field and and you you're not nuanced in in research as much you read that abstract and you say well protein doesn't do anything for for cancer survivors and that's not necessarily the case when you dive into the 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 study itself and you kind of see the goal was to increase protein consumption by about 40 grams and really they only did about half of that so you know if we were to replicate the study maybe there'd be there'd be more focus on on education and really trying to uh lock down that extra 40 grams plus and maybe seeing if if adherence to that extra supplement or or overall total protein intake might have influenced results to a greater degree absolutely absolutely you know i think you know future study if they want to you know replicate this to take this a uh, step further you know perhaps before the actual intervention starts to to actually take food logs at that point or to however you decide to assess dietary intake um, so that you actually have a, a true baseline um, maybe use a, a week or two to to educate the you know the participant about what they're consuming and you know not to make any changes etc um, before you actually begin the intervention, um, I think could have been helpful in that case. And perhaps, you know, maybe tracking diet more frequently. I know sometimes, you know, it can go either way. You know, you may exacerbate by doing it more frequently. You may exacerbate the problem in the sense that sometimes with self-report, um, because you know you're reporting your diet, then you eat differently. But perhaps if we had done it more frequently um, and analyzed those logs right away, whether we do it, you know, just through traditional dietary logs or with a, a mobile app and then give feedback throughout the study, um, perhaps that could have probably been a little better. Again, if you if you kind of just glimpse at the study, your, your takeaway is maybe, well, protein doesn't do any any, you know, additional benefit. 
but that's not to touch on um the the magnitude of of improvements in strength some of these people made um you're looking at 20 to 30 kilogram increase in upper and lower body strength across you know 12 weeks and 12 weeks is is not a long time you're looking at three months there with the addition of you know the first few weeks might have been a little bit you know kind of lighter more introductory and then you're really starting to ramp up the pace it's a phenomenal improvement across such a short amount of time um that that it's something i really want to emphasize in in folks taking away from this study is um not just the protein side of things but but the power of of resistance training to improve these variables and and, and as you said you know the the, the magnitude of improvement in strength there is really impressive Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the strength gains were, were, were awesome. And, you know, our, our main outcome was body composition. And we did see um, significant changes in body composition, um, which hasn't really been reported much prior in breast cancer survivors doing resistance training. Um, so overall, over the 12 weeks, lean mass increased um, and fat mass decreased. So you know we're really happy um, about that, especially in a in just a twelve week study and and considering the women were only exercising two days a week with us, you know which is something that could be manageable you know two three days a week is something that you know people could adhere to and and stick to did you monitor their outside activity or have any recommendations to maintain improve change anything about their activity outside of of coming in to train with you guys? Yeah, so um, we asked them, we did track their physical activity levels outside the study. Um, we did it through pedometers, um, and we asked the ladies to maintain their normal physical activity levels. So, you know, to not do anything drastic, not suddenly start training for a half marathon or, or anything extra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do our study and then train for an Ironman. Yeah, exactly. Actually, so physical activity levels um, didn't change in either group Um throughout the study um, when we tracked them uh, with pedometers. So that was just as, as a form of, you know, controlling just to, to, to control their physical activity levels. I think it, it lends, lends a lot more credence to this idea that the changes you saw and the, the improvements you saw were probably down to the intervention and not the fact that, as you said, they start your study, get really motivated, and then decide to, to exercise all day, every day because they're in this study. And, and I think it's a, it's a really good way of buffering what tends to happen in, in some of these studies because survivors come to you at, a, at, a, at a, a time in need or a time where they're really looking to make some changes. And you're there preaching, saying, exercise is great, let's do this study. And they say, well, I'm going to do exercise you know, all the time. And um, I think it's the difference between really trying to control these variables in a tightly controlled research study versus out in the real world where if someone came into you and said, you know, let's start some trend training, you'd be more than happy to suggest that they, they improve their activity outside of, of that as well, you know, and saying, well, it doesn't just have to be the two days a week. You can take up tennis, you can take up, you know, whatever, whatever activity you enjoy. This idea that more activity is better and the activity that you like to do is probably going to be best in terms of your overall adherence and and maintaining activity over the course of longer term. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I also do think about the idea that, you know, very often when people do start training programs too, you know, a lot of people take on too much at, at once as well. And, you know, I've, I've noticed, you know, several clients I've had in the past, you know, start to experience you know, sort of fitness fatigue, you know, a little burnout. 
you know, so which is sometimes something to to kind of think about as you you start a patient or survivor on a, on a new um, on a new intervention. Just the um, idea of consistency, small changes, um, but consistency. So I think if people make too many drastic changes and take on or try do too much early on in the intervention, I think um, the chance of burnout is is pretty high. That's that's a really good point that um, I want to sit there for a minute because I think you hit the nail on the head there when folks come in and say, well, diet and exercise is great to, to change my life. I'm going to change my lifestyle, my diet and my exercise. And it can be really overwhelming because there's there's so many little nuances to improving your activity and getting the exercise part right. And there's so many nuances to getting getting the diet a little bit in check. And to do all of that at once on top of, you know, your your daily activities and, and your family and dealing with everything else, it can get overwhelming pretty quickly. And we seem to be of the same mindset in that the smaller incremental steps will, that if you can form those habits and, and keep those habits and then build upon them over over a longer time, they will stay with you to a, a, a much greater degree than if you were to try and overhaul everything in the space of a couple of weeks, get burnt out or get overwhelmed and can, then kind of say, you know, this isn't for me. And that kind of cycle would repeat itself then over the course of months or months or years. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. So true, you know, and, you know, I experienced it myself too sometimes, so. <laughs> yeah, the, the academic cycle of, uh, of just your weight fluctuates based on the semester and <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> one, one, one thing I wanted to touch on a little bit because I think it's it's again a really important point and and something that I and really liked about your study is that the average age of of your participants was about 60 and one of the most common uh, I suppose concerns folks have females in particular um, are, are that once you hit that postmenopausal stage it's it's much more difficult for females to lose weight to improve body composition you know all that type of stuff that comes with exercise and i think um one of the things i really liked about your study was that you know the average age was about 60 and they still saw these these impressive results in both strength and body composition yeah you know and that that goes to the point you know it's never never too late you know one interesting thing a lot of the the survivors um actually mentioned you know that when they were growing up you know, women didn't lift weights, you know, they were told not to. And, you know, there was a barrier to that. And, you know, I think that idea is changing. And very often when we would talk about their bone density um, results, you know, we would talk about the, the importance of exercise and, you know, the place of resistance training in help, helping maintain bone density or improving it. Um, you know, and a lot of them expressed wishing they had started earlier in life too so but the positive is that it's it's never too late and you know our oldest survivor was 74 you know and she she made some real significant um, strength gains and improvements in body composition too so that was really cool to see you know and there weren't any incidences um i think that you know this moderate to vigorous exercise prescription if it's progressed appropriately i think is is definitely safe um, in this population of survivors. One of the things, again, I really I, I really liked about your study design, and it's funny because I read it in the limitations, in that you had, so typically in research, we'll have one exercise group, or one group does exercise, and one group doesn't do exercise, and we say, hey, look, exercise works. And in Titch's study, or in your study, 
we had both groups exercised or both groups did strength training and one had a protein supplement and in your limitation you said well maybe uh, one limitation could be the the lack of a control group or the lack of a, a group that didn't exercise and I think the research purists and the statisticians out there would would absolutely agree with you that it probably is a limitation but I think I'm of the mindset that and you kind of alluded to this in, in your in your study that there's enough evidence out there to show that the groups that don't exercise get worse and there's enough evidence to say if you do strength training you will get stronger yeah and i think your design where you're comparing two groups that exercise not only i think advances the research but from an ethical perspective if we had if we had a treatment that had the the power of exercise and we withheld that from from patients or survivors i think it, it's such a hard thing to do and i can i can give you an example we were recruiting for a prostate cancer study a couple of years ago and uh we had again the exercise versus control group and yeah had this uh this guy come in he was about 76 had his wife with him and our baseline assessments of of all our various measures takes about two hours so you get to know these guys and um you know it, he's talking about how excited he is about exercise and how much he's looking forward to it and really thinks it's going to change his life and get through the whole baseline test and i pull out the envelope and say sorry man you're you're in the control group i'll see you in six months for a follow-up and that that moment has stuck with me so much you know absolutely you could make a strong argument for the need for control groups and, and folks that don't exercise but i think designs like yours where you're comparing you know, two exercise groups be with the addition of a protein supplementation or two different modes of exercise will do so much more for our field than people coming out again and saying, well, the exercise group that didn't, or the control group that didn't exercise didn't see any improvements. And you're kind of going, yeah, obviously. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I created my mentor, you know, you know, Lynn Panton about that, you know, too. You know, she feels very strongly about that as well, you know, just like I do. And, you know, and with all our co-authors too, like we we all felt that you know it was okay and you know not to have a control group, you know, because it has been proven. I absolutely agree with you that you know if you're exercising, it's going to be better than not exercising. So, um, what did it uh, touch on a couple of more things before we finish up because we're coming up to about an hour now. Okay. When we first spoke about your study way back when, um, I know you you mentioned you had an initial re- interest in prostate cancer, and um. I think it's a really important point to to allude to because it gives a picture of, of one, the difficulty of doing research in this area, and two, um, a lot of the kind of recruitment issues we have in cancer research and that you initially wanted to do prostate cancer, but you had trouble with recruitment. Is that, if I can recall, that was the, the issue there? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I had started um, early on in my uh, doctoral program was, was looking at you know, this similar study design in prostate cancer survivors. And, you know, we're hoping to do like a comparison to both breast and prostate cancer survivors, um, a similar intervention like this. But it was it was definitely more challenging. You know, I think, you know, as men, we're typically a little more private, you know, about our health. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I think it's important that we, we, we try to overcome, especially, you know, if participating in studies like this could could be of benefit to the population as a whole but um yeah recruitment for for prostate cancer survivors was a little more challenging earlier on um but you know both cancers are very similar you know they're you know they're hormone dependent um both affect you know men and women respectively um 
in a similar manner too. Very common for both men and women for uh, prostate cancer and breast cancer, respectively. So, you know, I think something like this would be cool to to kind of try to do with prostate cancer survivors as well um, in the future. I, I look at... Um we typically see sample sizes of about 30, 40, 50 in, in, in these studies because a lot of the, the kind of issues you touched on in that, it, it can be quite difficult to, to recruit patients and survivors. And if you're a professional in this field looking to get into this area, it takes a lot of work to develop collaborations with physicians and oncologists in your area to develop a working relationship and build that trust between them where they feel comfortable referring you. And even then, it still takes a lot of work because they are so busy in their clinics that oftentimes, just by a virtue of time and, and their schedule, talking for 15 minutes to a participant or a patient about our study um, just kind of falls off the radar. And so there are quite a few recruitment issues that, that aren't unique to, to cancer, but definitely can slow the process a little bit. And then you, you look at some of, some of the work of someone like Katie Schmitz, where she did a, a a study with 250 breast cancer survivors and you're yeah. kind of going holy you know the <laughs> you, you have all the all the credit and admiration in the world for for what she's done for the field and um absolutely so much respect for someone like that so um let's let's finish with a couple of things so is there anything unique about breast cancer survivors you learned through this through this study and, and working with these folks i'd have to say you know, I've done studies before with, you know, different age groups, you know, college students, you know, middle-aged adults, and, and, and they were very, you know, the breast cancer survivors were a very, very great group um, to work with, made some great friends throughout the process um, that are still, my participants are still, you know, friends with me till this day, we still communicate, very motivated, um, and, you know, I really just encourage, you know, oncologists out there and, and you know, physicians um, in this field to encourage their um, survivors to to look into participating in um, resistance training through a, 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 a licensed trainer, um, et cetera, as part of their recovery and, and maybe during treatment as well, too. So, you know, you, you talked about collaborations with oncologists and, and, and physicians, and I think, well, I'm hoping with all this work that everyone's doing across the country, all this great work that I think they will start to recognize um, the place um, that exercise oncology has in both, you know, patients and survivors. And I think, you know, I think we can continue to strengthen our collaborations, and I think, to do some good work. Okay, so if you had to give a piece of advice for professionals working with this population, anything you can kind of give them as a takeaway, along with patients who may be listening or survivors uh, breast cancer survivors who are looking to start an exercise program can you touch a little bit on those two aspects of of one what is there anything a professional should know and two anything a breast cancer survivor should know about starting exercise you know i think with a with a professional um working with this population should definitely think about you know each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects different experiences um different levels of social support and and as you work with, you know, any, any, any client or any patient, just listening, I think, is a critical um, um, aspect in working with, with um, you know, clinical populations as well as just even just any population. I think being willing to adjust, um, even, you know, and to individualize the programs um, and to get creative sometimes when you need to make adjustments, I think, is, 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 is crucial. Um, and to do some research and to 
seek help and collaborations from from people who've done this work or um, just you know try to be thorough about it but be willing to adapt um, and make adjustments um, because you'll definitely need to and it could be it could be from week to week or month to month um, depending on what stage um, the survivor or patient is at and then I guess to to survivors to to um, definitely not be afraid to get in the gym um, obviously, Getting some supervision early on is important. Some guidance, getting someone qualified to um, to write your program and to work with you could be invaluable. Um, because once you, you know, kind of learn how to do it well and do it right, then, you know, you, it's a skill you never really forget. Um, so I really encourage survivors, breast cancer survivors, to 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 definitely not be afraid to lift heavy weights. Um, obviously, with correct form and with correct progression, but. You know, I think it's it's good for you. One of the things I tried to get across and the biggest points is while we're doing this research in the background, um, the ultimate goal for us is, as you said, to establish exercise oncology as a standard of care. And what can be done on the front end is is patients and survivors to pester your oncologist or your physician and take it upon yourselves to ask for referrals and and how to go about setting up an exercise program and finding people in your area because while we're working in the background i think the more patients survivors are, are making that call directly on the front line i think will definitely increase the awareness and exposure to hey maybe this is something that's needed people are asking for it let's look into how we can how we can get it off the ground and i think together that will then serve to to really drive the field forward yeah um and i think you know yeah the, like you said the patients can really and the survivors could really drive drive this new initiative by by pestering their oncologists and their physicians. All right, mate. Well, listen, we're coming up on an hour, so I, I really appreciate this chat. I think it was, um, you know, I certainly got a, a great deal of it, and I hope folks listening listening did too. So I appreciate your time. So where can people find you if they're looking for you on on social media or whatever the case may be? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'm definitely accessible um, over email. Um, you know, my email address is uh, tmadzima at elon.edu. Um, and if you just, you know, type it, search Titch in Google, you should be able to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Titch Cancer, you know. You will... <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then um, Titch Madzima on um, Twitter, um, typically on Twitter as well. And I just want to just give a shout out to to my co-authors too on this uh, study, um, uh, Dr. Mike Wormsby, you know, like, had a, played a large part throughout the study, especially with designing it, and um, you know Bob Moffat and um, Erica Schleicher was like my right home throughout this whole process, and definitely want to thank my mentor Lynn Panton, and um, definitely with all aspects of putting together the study. Brilliant, yeah. So if anyone's in the the North Carolina area um, near Elon, um, Titch is the guy you need to seek out in this in this area. Really uh, top notch guy, and thanks for stopping by and chatting to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this week's episode, folks. A huge thanks to Titch for sitting down and chatting with us about his study today. We've got part two of the Matt Lampson episode coming up next week, so be on the lookout for that. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Kieran Fairman or go to reachbeyondcancer.com and you can follow me on various social media sites there. So thanks again for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you soon.